Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tracy Bumgard and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Rights groups condemn unrest in Central African Republic. South Africa relaxes COVID-19 restrictions. In economics news, Tanzania remains one of the fastest growing economies in Africa. And in sports news, Athletics Kenya receives a much needed boost. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. President Cyril Ramaphosa has announced that South Africa is returning to level one of the lockdown. He was addressing the nation. He says South Africa has clearly emerged from the second wave of coronavirus. Under level one, the curfew starts at midnight and ends at 4 a.m. Gatherings will be allowed but must be limited to 100 people indoors and 250 people outdoors. Night vigils after funerals are still not permitted. Alcohol sales are allowed in normal trading hours but are not allowed during curfew hours. President Ramaphosa says people must still adhere to protocols like wearing masks. The wearing of masks in public places is still mandatory. In other words, compulsory. And failure to wear a mask when required to do so remains a criminal offence. Social distancing is even more critical. These measures are not merely to protect each of us, but also to protect those who we love and we care for. We must continue these measures even as more and more of our people get vaccinated. 
Medical charity Doctors Without Borders has reiterated its call to wealthy nations and pharmaceutical corporations to provide solutions to ensure equal access to coronavirus vaccines for poor nations. It's urged world leaders to support a proposal by South African India to waiver monopolies on COVID-19 medical tools. The charity is Kate Stigerman. The vote is going to be happening at the World Trade Organization's Council. And if that proposal is supported, and at the moment there are over 100 countries that are supporting South Africa and India's official proposal, then that basically means that if we waive intellectual property and if patents are not upheld, it means that countries in middle and lesser developing contexts are able to produce the vaccines themselves. Technology to do with treating COVID. The same countries that are hoarding those vaccines are the countries that are blocking this waiver. Healthcare workers in the Ivory Coast city of Abidjan will get COVID-19 vaccinations. It's the first national rollout of the UN-backed COVAX program. The Global Vaccine Share Initiative is to help poorer countries control the pandemic, the BBC's Naomi Grimley reports. COVAX is the biggest vaccine procurement plan in human history. But it's struggled in the international scramble for vaccines and has faced criticism for being too slow to start its rollout. Some countries have looked elsewhere in the interim to boost supplies through bilateral deals. COVAX is currently only designed to cover around 20% of each country's population, a world away from the herd immunity which rich countries expect to achieve via mass vaccination. Officials in Myanmar say the death toll in an anti-coup protest across the country has risen to 18. uh, Police used live ammunition as they clashed with demonstrators across three cities in the deadliest confrontation since the military coup at the beginning of the month. The BBC's Nahin Chan Aye reports. People remain defiant in the ongoing fight for democracy. Police appear to be using stun grenades, tear gas, Soundbone and life rounds. Despite the crackdowns, thousands of protesters remain on the streets. In many places, people are setting up barricades and carrying shields to protect themselves. Donald Trump has used his first major political speech since his departure from the White House to position himself as a Republican presidential candidate in 2024. Trump strongly criticized the Biden administration for reversing tough policies on immigration and border security. His supporters seem to have chosen to forget his impeachment over inciting the U.S. Capitol riot in January. The BBC's Nick Bryant has more. This conservative conference had the feel of a revival meeting, a gathering that suggested that if there is to be a battle for the soul of the Republican Party, then Donald Trump has the numbers to win. The loser of the 2020 election was greeted like a conquering hero, partly because many people here still believe he won. In his first address since leaving the White House, he ruled out creating his own party to rival the Republicans, a sign of his continued dominance of the American conservative movement. For many Republicans, it's almost as if January the 6th never happened. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African time. SABC News. Independent. And impartial. From an African perspective. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, 
and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. It's 7.08 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. At least 14 people have been killed at a religious site in the Central African Republic amid clashes between armed groups and security forces. This is according to the new material gathered by rights group Amnesty International following the analysis of satellite images, testimonies and photographs. The organization has published a report detailing an attack that took place on February the 16th in Bambari, the Central African Republic's fifth biggest town. The group has called on authorities to launch independent judicial investigations into the attack. Amnesty International Central African Republic researcher Abdullaye Diara has more on the report. Since uh, December, uh, as you know, a coalition of uh, many armed groups uh, attacked several villages. And uh, in our um, press release, we uh, find that um, the coalition of armed groups named CPC attacks and loot uh, several villages in Central Africa. And we could see on uh, satellite images forces population to, to move around the country and outside the country. Uh, These attacks has led to a sharp deterioration in the humanitarian uh, situation. And uh, especially in uh, February, there were a, a fighting between uh, uh, CPC and uh, government forces in Bambari town. And uh, during the fight, there were a religious site located in the east of the city. We collect also many photos and uh, videos, and on that uh, videos you can, we can see uh, bodies of people believed to have been killed in the same day. A total of 14 corpses are visible on the ground, most of them partially or fully covered in tissue. For the visible parts, um, the people were not wearing military uniforms. The video also made it possible to see in close-up um, some of these corpses, including a woman and a child. We also received some photos and analyzed them in our labs, and um, these photos showed damage to the same building. An image shows what Amnesty International has confirmed to be uh, damage from an explosion of a weapon, as well as damage visible on the ground and holes on the adjacent wall corresponding to the result of the detonation of an ammunition producing fragment. The wounds um, probably from the ammunition fragments reflecting the damage observed on the wall also visible in the photo of at least three corpses. Uh, I have to say that in Bombari, uh, health center was also hit. We do not have all the elements necessary to determine the legality or not of this attack on February, but we would like to remind to all parties to the conflict that attacks on uh, civilian targets are prohibited by uh, international humanitarian law, and uh, special precaution must be taken to protect uh, religious building and uh, health center. Now, you are talking about the satellite images that you have relied on whilst putting together this report. Have you been able to verify these satellite images? 
Yes, we uh, talk with uh, many, um, we collect many testimonies uh, in uh, Bambari, but also in Bangasu. Uh, in Bangasu, um, their people told, uh, explain us how, uh, how was the situation on the 3 January when the CPC uh, uh, groups attacked the city and uh, they looted the market. And almost 80% of the people living there were forced to leave the country and to go to DSC. So we have uh, this satellite image, photos, but also uh, many testimonies. Now, the report also says that uh, an important first step is to open independent investigations into the violations and abuses documented. Are you optimistic as Amnesty International that authorities are capable of opening an independent investigation? Yes, uh, l- let me uh, remember that uh, on October 2020, we uh, published a report which analyzed the progress made at the level of the Special Criminal Court and uh, Central African Courts. At several times, judges had not, uh, at this time, uh, several judges at the Special Criminal Court were not being appointed yet. But since then, the decrease appointing judges have, have been propagated. So the court also benefits from the support of Central African partners. We believe that the court has an important role to play in the fight against impunity, and it's important to continue providing support. Considering the number of cases in progress, it's important that uh, ordinary courts all can also be supported. We saw that um, there was a lack of uh, resources in the interior of the country, but um, the partners and the Central African authorities must uh, focus on the entire criminal chain so that it can be operational again because without uh, fighting against impunity it's it's not easy to end uh, the violence in the country because perpetrator will continue to do so that's uh, abdullaye diara amnesty international central african republic researcher on the line from dakar senegal speaking to channel africa's kumbela munjelele The murder of the Italian ambassador to the Democratic Republic of Congo has created tensions between the two countries. Rome has demanded an investigation and clear answers from the UN as Italian press reports that Luca Atanasio could have been killed by Congolese army fire. He died with his bodyguard and the driver of the World Food Programme after an attack on a convoy of the UN agency a week ago in North Kivu. Januel Bamwe the reports from Kinshasa. The Italian authorities would like to see clearly and understand the circumstances in which the youngest of the ambassadors accredited to Kinshasa has died. Luca Atanasio, his Italian bodyguard Vittorio Locovaci and Congolese driver Mustafa Milambo were killed while they were part of a convoy organized by WFP. That's indeed the reason why Rome has initially pointed a finger against the UN.
But for more light on this matter, investigators are already on the site, as revealed by Marine Tumbanzesa, the DRC Minister of Foreign Affairs. Le gouvernement dépêche sur le terrain dès ce jeudi une commission chargée. The government is dispatching a commission on Thursday to conduct an in-depth investigation in order to determine the circumstances that led to the attack of the convoy, which included Ambassador Atanasio and his collaborators. The government of the DRC reiterates its desire to consolidate diplomatic relations with all of its partners, including Western and others, contrary to what has been reported by some media. Investigations shouldn't be limited to the only assassination of the Italian ambassador. The investigators should also put on their agenda the situation of continuing massacre in Beni and Ituri, according to some MPs from Beni. One of them is Paul Muhindu Vawamawa. La seule chose que Beni réclame, la seule chose que le Nord Kivu réclame, the only thing Beni is demanding, what North Kivu is demanding, and the only thing Itur is demanding is peace. I believe that same time we're looking for the real authors of the death of the ambassador, the same investigations must also be focused on Beni so that the real criminals can be quickly found. Meanwhile, following the assassination of the ambassador, Congolese authorities have decided all diplomats working here in Kinshasa must notify the government in advance of their movement within the country. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. In each and every one of us, there, there is a purpose and grace. We were all meant to shine. It is up to an individual to, to realize, realize that, that purpose. Don't ever let somebody tell you you can't do something. Join me, Amanda Machaga, on Life by Design, where I will be talking to people who share their journey on how they discovered their purpose with the hope to inspire you to, to live your life, life by design. design. Tune in to Life by Design for your dose, dose of Monday, Monday motivation every Monday at 8 a.m. Central African time and at 2 a.m. the following day. Life, life by design, design, be the architect of your life. life. Only on Channel Africa, be African, be African perspective. perspective. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 7.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. It's important that the international community does not lend legitimacy or recognition to the military regime in Myanmar. That was the message delivered by the United Nations Secretary General Special Envoy on Myanmar during an informal meeting in the General Assembly in which that country's legitimate ambassador made an impassioned plea for international assistance to restore the elected government. With a warning that the military coup in early February risked pushing Myanmar back towards isolation from the international community. Show and Bryce Peace reports. 
A country in turmoil since the army seized power, detaining the elected leadership, including Nobel Peace Laureate Aung San Suu Kyi, after her party won last November's parliamentary election in a landslide. Christine Bergener is the Secretary General Special Envoy on Myanmar. Instead of resorting differences to established legal mechanisms, the military exploited difference to try to justify an attempted coup. I say attempted, since the takeover has not stabilized, it would appear to be roundly rejected by the people. It is important the international community does not lend legitimacy or recognition to this regime. I also say coup because the military takeover and declaration of the state of emergency was a clear violation of the constitution, regardless of what they claim. Bergner warned that the international community could no longer take a business-as-usual approach to Myanmar's military as it continued with ongoing violations, including the killing of peaceful protesters, illegal detentions and clamping down on freedom of expression, including targeting journalists, calling the rising death toll unacceptable, while the special envoy's efforts to visit the country have so far been blocked by the country's military. If the regime is not giving access or accepting UN visits needed for these purposes, influential member states could play an important role and support efforts to undertake objective assessments. Member states gathered today have a collective responsibility towards the people of Myanmar and safeguard their democratic aspirations. I reiterate the Secretary-General's call for member states to exercise influence regarding the protection of human rights and fundamental freedom of the people of Myanmar. An emotional Myanmar ambassador, Kyo Mo Tun, who continues to represent the elected civilian government led by the National League for Democracy, appealed for international solidarity. The military can no longer uphold the rule of law and protect the people and the country. Myanmar military has become the existential threat for Myanmar as a polity and civilized society. Now is not the time for the international community to tolerate the war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by Myanmar military. The international community must ensure that coup has no place in the modern world as bound by the UN Secretary General. South Africa, one of just two African countries to join the debate, called for the rule of law to be respected and for the release of detainees. Ambassador Kholisa Mabongo. We believe that the developments in Myanmar undermine the democratic reforms following the general elections held on 8th November 2020. South Africa therefore calls upon the military in Myanmar to respect the rule of law. We firmly believe that any political differences should be resolved through an inclusive and peaceful dialogue. Several countries and regional blocs, including the EU, the UK and the United States, have either threatened or imposed targeted financial sanctions against the military leadership. As several countries condemned the coup, Washington's newly installed ambassador, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. It is time for the military to immediately relinquish power, refrain from further violence, release all those unjustly detained and restore Myanmar's democratically elected government. And it is time to provide unhindered humanitarian access 
so that life-saving humanitarian assistance reaches all the people in need. Regional powerhouse China said it was engaging parties to de-escalate tensions but referred to the situation in Myanmar as an internal matter, Ambassador Zhang Yun. What happened in Myanmar is in essence Myanmar's internal affairs. The international community should, on the premise of respecting Myanmar's sovereignty, political independence, territorial integrity and national unity, help relevant parties in Myanmar to conduct dialogue and reconciliation in accordance with the wishes and interests of its people. The General Assembly president earlier said it was not too late for the military to reverse the negative trajectory on the ground. I'm Sherwin Bricepees in New York. A declassified U.S. intelligence report has assessed that Saudi Arabia's crown prince likely approved an operation to kill or capture journalist Jamal Khashoggi inside a consulate in Istanbul, Turkey in October 2018. After days of speculation, the report was released on Friday afternoon in a move likely to alter relations between Washington and Riyadh. Sherwin Bricepees reports. The main conclusion in the report came as no surprise after media reports as far back as November 2018 quoted anonymous CIA officials fingering Saudi Arabia's de facto leader. An independent UN rapporteur's investigation also blamed the Saudi government for the murder in June of 2019, but urged further investigation to determine under whose instruction the journalist was assassinated. The release of the report by President Joe Biden is now being viewed as a public rebuke of the 35-year-old crown prince and a different posture from the new U.S. government that has pledged to speak out over human rights concerns. Listen to White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Our administration is focused on recalibrating the relationship, as we've talked about in here previously. And certainly there are areas where uh, we will express concerns uh, and uh, leave open the option of accountability. There are also areas where we will continue to work with Saudi Arabia, uh, given the threats they face in the region. The executive summary of the Intel report found that Mohammed bin Salman approved an operation in Istanbul to capture or kill Khashoggi, basing their assessment on the Crown Prince's control of decision-making in the kingdom and the direct involvement of a key advisor and members of his protective detail in the operation. The report says it would have been highly unlikely for Saudi officials to carry out an operation of this nature without his approval. Saudi Arabia remains a strategic partner in the region. John Kirby is the Pentagon spokesperson. We have to be courageous enough uh, as friends to speak candidly and, uh, um, and, and to make clear our concerns um, about the rule of law and about civil and human rights, uh, even with friends and partners. <laughs> Oscar-winning filmmaker Brian Fogel, whose documentary The Dissident was released in January and investigates the killing of Khashoggi, also weighed in. It appears that, uh, that the administration uh, is very serious about re-examining uh, the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. And, uh, and in so doing, we might see some real uh, change in their human rights uh, violations um, and, that, uh, uh, and in their policy of suppressing uh, freedom of thought and opinion. And I think the other thing that is shocking is the extents to which uh, an authoritarian regime such as Saudi Arabia will go to suppress freedom of speech and freedom of opinion. 
Khashoggi was a well-known critic of the Saudi government and the crown prince in particular. UN Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Killings Agnes Kalamard in a statement urged the United States to take the lead in ensuring accountability for the crime and for putting in place the international mechanisms required to prevent and punish such acts in the future. I'm Sherman Bricepees in New York. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has moved the country to a let level one of the lockdown effective from last night. He was addressing the nation on the country's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Under a let level one, the wearing of masks will be mandatory with the curfew starting at midnight and ending at 4 a.m. Central African time. Gatherings will be allowed but limited to 100 people indoors and 250 people outdoors among others. Ndebo Mugobo has more. After recording less than 10,000 new infections last week as compared to 40,000 in the last week of January and 90,000 in the last week of December, President Ramaphosa says the country has finally emerged from the second wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. And for that, a number of restrictions have now been eased with the lockdown level now two notches down. The new alert level will come into effect once the regulations have been gazetted. Night vigils or other gatherings before or after funerals are still not permitted. Nightclubs will remain closed. The sale of alcohol will be permitted according to normal license provisions. However, no alcohol may be sold during the hours of curfew. And failure to wear a mask when required to do so remains a criminal offence. The 33 land border posts that have been closed throughout this period will remain closed, while the other 20 will remain open. Only five airports will be open for international travel, and these are OR Tambo, Cape Town International, King Shaka International, Kruger, Bumalanga, and Lanseria Airport. The president also said the only way to overcome the pandemic is to get the nation vaccinated insisting that the country's vaccination program is well underway. Phase one of this program is targeting health workers, and so far 67,000 of them have been vaccinated. President Ramaphosa said the country has secured a number of vaccines from different manufacturers to cover the entire nation. We have recently signed an agreement with Johnson & Johnson to secure 11 million doses. Of these doses, 2.8 million doses will be delivered in the second quarter, and the rest spread throughout the year. We've also secured 20 million doses from Pfizer, which will be delivered from the second quarter. Additionally, we have secured 12 million vaccine doses from the COVAX facility, and we are in the process of finalizing our dose allocation from the African Union. We are in constant contact with various other vaccine manufacturers to ensure that we have the necessary quantities of vaccines when we need them. The president also acknowledged the impact that the coronavirus had on different households and the economy. He said government relief measures like the COVID-19 tests and the UIF have now been extended for families and companies hardest hit by the pandemic. But he said this could not be indefinite. As I announced in the State of the Nation address, we have therefore extended the period for the special COVID-19 grant by a further three months until the end of April. We have also extended the UIF special covid 19 wage support benefit until the 15th of March 2021 for those sectors of the economy that have not been able to operate over this period. These measures 
have been shown to be effective at reducing the economic impact of the pandemic on some of the most vulnerable in our society. Our country's public finances are, however, extremely constrained, and we cannot keep such relief measures in place indefinitely. And as the country now moves to a late level one, South Africans are once again urged to observe the COVID-19 protocols to avoid a possible resurgence. Meanwhile, different ministers will further outline how the East restrictions will unfold during their briefings this week. I am Tebu Mukobo in Johannesburg. It's 7.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. In the headlines, President Cyril Ramaphosa has announced that South Africa is returning to level one of the lockdown. He addressed the nation last night. Healthcare workers in the Ivory Coast city of Abidjan will today receive their COVID-19 vaccinations. And the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has condemned the violent crackdown against anti-coup protesters after the UN Human Rights Office earlier reported that at least 18 people were killed and over 30 wounded. Those are the stories making headlines. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel African in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. It's 7.33 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. The second batch of Johnson & Johnson vaccines have arrived in South Africa. President Sul Ramaphosa announced earlier that another 80,000 more Johnson & Johnson vaccines were due to arrive in the country. More than 60,000 frontline healthcare workers have already received the one dose of the jab. Zolega Kotashe reports. The consignment of 80,000 vaccine doses is expected to be moved to a secure facility in Gauteng before being distributed to various vaccine centers across all provinces. The single-shot vaccine has shown a 64% efficacy rate against the coronavirus variant first discovered in the country. The South African Health Products Regulatory Authority, SAPRAM, meanwhile says it has found that several communities in the country are developing antibodies against COVID-19 following the second wave of the coronavirus pandemic. Chairperson Professor Helen Rees says in light of this, the delivery of the second consignment is encouraging. In the context of our variant, it's about 64%. Not only have we got a high level of effectiveness against severe disease, but we didn't see deaths. So this is really encouraging because we have been very concerned that the 
vaccines that we're going to be looking at now were not designed for the variant that now is the predominant variant in South Africa. So I think this is encouraging. And we're also finding that a lot of people have got antibodies following the second wave. We've also got natural immunity at quite high rates in, in different communities. So we've got natural immunity and then we'll build it up with vaccine immunity. Public health expert Mosa Mushavela says he believes that the private sector, NGOs and civil society should also be involved along with the public sector in the rollout of the coronavirus vaccine. Health Minister Dr. Zuelim Kize says the healthcare sector may have to consider inoculating more than the original target of 40 million people to reach herd immunity. Moshabela says more sectors need to be involved to help fast-track the vaccine rollout program. This is one of those difficult times where we need all hands on deck. I don't see how... This can be done by government alone. Everybody has to play their part. So the delivery here in terms of the vaccines will require different partners to come on board. That whole thing around social compact, this is when we need to make it a reality. Make sure that private sector is on board. Make sure that civil society is on board. Uh, Non-governmental organizations, ordinary community members are also providing income support because it will save lives. If we don't do it, then we are prolonging our misery. Healthcare workers who have not yet received the coronavirus vaccine say they are anxiously awaiting the jab. The second batch is also expected to be administered to the group. Medical officer intern Balesa Mogwena says she is excited to receive the jab. I'm excited to get the vaccine, mainly because we know that it's not going to prevent you from getting COVID necessarily, but it does prevent more severe disease. So I think for that peace of mind, just knowing that as we go to work every single day, working with COVID patients every single day of our lives, we're not necessarily risking our lives to that extent anymore. So for that reason, and having a newborn baby to protect, I'd say I'm really excited to get the vaccine. Meanwhile, the National Department of Health says it has reached its first vaccination milestone. The department says over 63,000 healthcare workers have been vaccinated in the private and public sector since the first consignment of vaccines arrived in the country almost two weeks ago. I'm Zoleka Kodashim in Johannesburg. In a little while from now, India will start inoculating its senior citizens in the second wave of the world's largest COVID-19 vaccination drive launched last month. Jabs will be given free of cost at thousands of state-run facilities where people over 45 years with chronic ailments can also walk in for the shots. Ranasen has more. And those willing to pay can get a single shot for 52 rands in the second phase which targets Indians aged above 60 years, said government expert Randeep Guleria. The government capped the price but allowed the private labs also to do the testing. So in a similar manner, vaccine is being rolled out, it's being made sure that it's done in a judicious manner and those who really need to be vaccinated are vaccinated, it's not misused. At the same time, the cost has been sort of capped so that it's affordable and it's not something that is actually done to make a huge profit. Private hospitals will take part to speed up the program, added Ram Sevak Sharma, the architect of a national software that tracks citizens seeking COVID shots. This time around, we are having all the government facilities which we were using earlier, and now we have added about 
12,000 more hospitals, which are private sector hospitals. And if there are uh, four states where we don't have the PMJY scheme running and they have their own uh, state health schemes, so we have said that they are, they, these private hospitals should also be included in the process. So we expect about 13,000 private hospitals also will participate in this. The target is to achieve herd level immunity, said Sanjay Oak, who leads the COVID task force in badly hit Maharashtra state. The objective is that everybody, right from a poor person to a rich person, get it. If you are a healthcare frontline worker for COVID, if you have comorbidities, then if you are more than 50 years of age, and lastly, the least affected group of 18 to 50. And I expect that by September, October, a significant amount of Indian populace would have got at least one dose of vaccine. Many of us would have got even both the doses of vaccines. And that would bring us to a situation of acceptable herd level immunity. But an upcoming season of weddings, festivals and elections in four Indian states may come as a challenge to the health planners. It's wedding season in some parts of the country. There are festivals in other parts of the country. And it's possible that these kinds of congregations, including things like elections, could drive an increase in the number of cases. It's certainly possible that we will see localized outbreaks that may be driven by behaviors that are inappropriate during the campaigns. That was virologist Gagandeep Kang pinning her hopes on the vaccination drive to beat a second coronavirus wave in India. And that report by Rana Sen in New Delhi. Matric learners in South Africa have been encouraged to pursue rewriting the subjects they did not do well in instead of repeating the whole year. Basic Education Minister Angie Mutsecha announced matric results last week and now matriculants are weighing their options. Matriculants have also been reminded that they can ask for remarking. Angela Boulon reports. Majors need to rewrite provided you have enough time to do, to put extra study in to improve the result. Um, Some people think repeating the whole year, but of course uh, that is not always a solution, it's a whole, whole year. And if you can achieve the same thing by rewriting in June, why not? Um, But I'm not discouraging people from trying that if in fact all their marks were not good. Then, of course, I think they go back with a far more serious attitude. Teacher Union Nakchosa's Basel Manual encouraging metric learners to weigh their options carefully before repeating the whole year. Manuel has also reminded matriculants that they might have to explore other education facilities as schools will not always take them back. Kosas Datlas Ngumeni says the metric second chance program and supplementary examinations are also another option. If you have got a bachelor and you do not have or you are not accepted in a university. Do not feel less of a person. There are TVETs, the uh, uh, technical universities. You go there, they do not offer lesser of qualifications. They are still institutions of higher learning. There is no institution of higher learning which is better than the other. If you, if you do not get the a bachelor which allows you to do your desired qualification. You can still go back to the same class upgrade until you acquire that which you desire. 
Satu's Mugwena Maluleke has also encouraged metric learners to seek out foundation courses that will eventually lead them to the same qualifications they do not qualify for at university. Establish if they have foundation courses that they are offering so that you are then able to be offered that particular foundation phase. In certain instances, it may be one year or it may be a six months um, um, a pre-admission course so that then you are then able to improve your chances of being in admitted in that particular field. They must also be able to check if they are pre-bachelors, uh, where they can be able to register for those particular pre-bachelors test or admission. The Department of Basic Education spokesperson Elijah Mklanga says there will be opportunities for matriculants to rewrite in June and in November. He says it will be difficult for matriculants to be accepted back in school and as a result they should rather pursue the second chance program where they are also offered contact classes at teacher centers. He also advised matriculants to apply for a remark although this might clash with the university registration process. And that report by Angela Bulana. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. At 7.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tracy Boomgaard. Thank you, Lulu. The African Development Bank says despite the COVID-19 pandemic, Tanzania remains one of the fastest growing economies on the African continent. This was revealed by AFDB President Dr. Akinwumi Adesina over the weekend. Adesina said Tanzania achieved real DGP growth of 6.9% in 2019. Kenya's members of parliament will not ratify Kenya's trade pact with the United Kingdom, Lawmakers say until they are fully aware of the details of the economic partnership agreement between the two countries, they will not ratify the agreement. They deferred debate on the report of the Trade, Industry and Cooperatives Committee after some sections containing details of the pact were sneaked in without the authorization of the Speaker. Nigeria's Vice President Yemo Osunbajo says cryptocurrency in the country should be regulated, not banned. He's urged Nigerians to act with knowledge, not fear. 
Osun Bajo was delivering a keynote address at a one-day economic summit organized by the Central Bank of Nigeria, the Bankers Committee, the Vanguard newspaper-themed Bankers Initiative for Economic Growth. The second edition of the Aswan Forum for Sustainable Peace and Development will take place this week. Egypt will host the second edition under the title Shaping Africa's New Normal, Recovering Stronger, Rebuilding Better. The forum will bring together leaders of government, regional and international organizations, financial institutions, the private sector, civil society, as well as visionary scholars, key experts and practitioners. Against the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic, the participants will discuss new risks and challenges, as well as opportunities that lie ahead for the continent. Chinese shares rose on Monday, rebounding from a sharp sell-off last week that had been prompted by fears of policy tightening, but gains were capped after China's factory activity grew at a slower pace in February. The index fell more than 5% last week, its biggest weekly drop in a year. At midday trade, the Shanghai Composite Index was up 0.52%. One U.S. dollars trading at 379.47 Nigerian Naira, 10.79 Botswana Pula, 108.88 Kenyan Shilling and 21.75 Zambian Kwacha. The dollars trading at 5.59 Brazilian Hale, 74.52 Russian Ruble, 73.68 Indian Rupee, 6.47 Chinese Yuan and at 15.08 South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 71 pence to the British pound and 82 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,750 and platinum at $1,213 per ounce. Brent crude oil is at $65.50 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In this hour, we begin with cricket news. The South African cricket side Imperial Lions won their second consecutive Betway T20 Challenge title with a nerve-wracking four-wicket victory and one over to spare over the Hollywood Bats Dolphins at the Hollywood Bats Kingsmeet in Durban. Imperial Lions captain Temba Bavuma. Yeah, this T20 means a lot to us. Um, yeah, means a lot to the guys, especially the guys that play for the national team. We never really get an opportunity to play for, for our franchise um, as much as we play for the national team, but we owe it to the guys here at Domestic. We owe it to our unions back home, um, the guys who kind of invested in us, um, who gave us all the opportunity and the support for us to, to get to where we were. Um, so, I mean, it's a special one. All trophies are special. I don't know, but this one feels a little bit special than, than the others. The elective annual general meeting of the Football Association of Zambia FAS held at the Fairmont Hotel in Livingston 
has concluded with Andrew Kamanga being re-elected as president for another four-term period. The incumbent Kamanga collected 57 votes, while his opponent Emmanuel Munaile managed 29 votes. It was all celebrations by the councillors after the electoral committee chairman Ronald Katongo announced the result. Kamanga, who will be vying for FIFA council member position on the 12th of March, has called for unity among all football people in the country. He also says they need to continue to build on the path of accountability, transparency and integrity, since they are the cornerstone of good management. Athletics Kenya, AK, has received a sponsorship check of $10,000 from the National Olympic Committee of Kenya, NOC, to support the marathon team that will represent Kenya at the Tokyo Olympics. Marathon world champion Ruth Chepke-Ditch received the check on behalf of the team from NOC president Dr. Paul Taggart. The National Olympic, Olympic Committee for the support that, are, that they have supported us today to start our training for next season Olympic Games. Secondly, and for my training, I will prepare well because they have supported us. So I will work out in my training to make sure that I have bring gold to Kenya. As athletes, I think we will go sit down, discuss what we will do to deliver some medals to Kenya. Athletics Kenya has already named a star-studded team of four ladies and four men who will make up Team Kenya for the marathon event that will take place at Sapporo Odiri Park in Japan on the 7th and the 8th of August. The president of NOC, Paul Tegard, himself, a former marathon runner, is encouraging the team. I'm happy that uh, today we are having a, a very important uh, occasion, especially for uh, handing over and support to the eight marathoners. And I want to congratulate them uh, since that I've actually met uh, to, uh, to represent the country and, uh, and have satisfied uh, the, the technical uh, bench uh, so for them to be able, able to go. One thing that I want maybe to say is that um, as uh, Marat- Maradona's, it is uh, now the work is on your hands now. Uh, we all know that uh, Olympics is uh, once in four years. Uh, this is an opportunity for, for, all of, for all of you, the eight of you, uh, who are going to participate and represent the country. I want to encourage that um, us as a National Olympic Committee, we will spare nothing uh, to see to it that uh, we support you in terms of any technical support that we might need from our hand so that you can be able to achieve the very best. Tiger Woods offered a heartfelt thanks to his fellow golfers for their tribute on Sunday where many donned the 15-time major champion's signature Sunday red and black for the final round. Woods suffered a car accident last week and was being treated at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles with a fractured right leg and a shattered ankle, calling into question the future of the 45-year-old's historic career. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. 
That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutu Ramagadza, technical producer Sviso Mashekho, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at whyshineafrica. I'll take us to the top of the hour for the news is Bayete with a song titled Africa Unite. Goodbye and keep safe.